0: My name is Jeff Fuller, pastor at Living Hope Wesleyan Church, hopeforvermont.org, and we're so glad to uh, have you join us. You can also subscribe on YouTube, Living Hope Wesleyan, and now on Google Podcasts and iTunes as Living Hope Wesleyan. Joining us now is Reverend Dan Ryland. Dan, how are you?
1: I'm doing great, Jeff. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing excellent, and thank you so much for making the time. I'm going to uh, show you some flattery to begin, and that is simply my... uh, Wesleyan um, Mount Rushmore would be John Wesley, uh, Wayne Schmidt, Dr. John C. Maxwell, and then yourself. There's just something that I've heard about you that is just um, fascinating. But your kindness, uh, I hear it from everybody that I've talked to, whether it's Brent Ingersoll up in New Brunswick, Canada, Brian Dodd, uh, just different people I've interacted with. Just say that you're so down-to-earth Where did that come from?
1: Oh, what a good question. You jump right into the pool quickly, don't you? (laughs) I love it, Jeff. You know, I don't know that I'm actually aware of it. uh, Mm -hmm. So I don't know that I'm aware of that. I mean, I think I'm a very self-aware leader, but I don't know I'm aware of its source or that as a a truth. But I would say this. Here's what I do know. Uh, People who treat me with kindness, uh, I really appreciate it. I'm very aware of it when people treat me kindly. So perhaps, in turn, uh, that's taught me to treat others with kindness. Now, Dan, can you just share where you grew up? I can. I'm actually a SoCal kid, born in Southern California. I grew up there in the 60s and uh, as a kid. And so, you know, the Beatles, hippies, there was a lot of that influence in my early life. I was a little too young to actually, you know, be in that movement, but it, it shaped me. You know, and uh, when you grow up in your senior and junior and senior year, wondering if you're going to Vietnam, uh, that kind of does something to you, a war that can't be won. Uh, But my early shapings were then transferred into Christ. I received Jesus as my savior when I was a senior in high school. And so that brought a lot of hope and a lot of positivity and a lot of faith to what was otherwise kind of a crazy time to grow up. Did you grow up with Christian parents? Um, my parents were—how would you call that? Um, we would say they were morally and ethically Christian. Would say I believe in God. Uh, my mom would actually, you know, reward me uh, monetarily if I would memorize scripture. Mm. But we were more of a family who went to church on Christmas and Easter. Uh, prior to going, coming to faith as a Christian in my in my senior year of high school. And did you have any siblings? I did. I have a brother and a sister, um, both a little younger than I am, and one is in, is in um, uh, uh, Colorado and the other in um, San Diego still.
0: You brought up uh, about Vietnam and definitely an interesting time in your history then, and we are certainly facing an interesting time in history in general right now. Did you have friends that fought or did not come
1: home in that war? Have friends that fought in the war, no close friends that didn't come home. Um, but definitely friends that, that fought came back, and multiple ones. And none of them were the same. They don't complain. They served their country, even though it was a very confusing war. no nobody in that era wanted to be there. Nobody understood it. Highly politicized, very, very the country was very divided then. Uh, it was a more of a generational division than it was necessarily a political division. But nonetheless, there was a lot of unrest. Nobody knew how to dig their way out. So,
0: So Dan, that begs a question for me at least to ask. After this pandemic or during this year of 2020, with the social injustice, the unrest, the election year, do you think people are going to fight whether it's PTSD following this year, similar to what you saw from your friends
1: that fought that war? It's already happening. We're already watching. with the pandemic, at least, uh, we don't know about post-election stuff. We don't even know what post-COVID looks like. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it's already happening where divisions politically, division COVID-wise, is actually increasing divorce rates. We're seeing tensions that people don't uh, know what to do with. I call it the UNS, the new overwhelm, the new um, overload are are these three uns I I, we talk about a lot one is unanswered questions the second is unsolved problems the third is unknown future and that's kind of the new overwhelm that people are dealing with and when we get on the other here's the thing no crisis lasts forever Mm -hmm. we are going to get through it it's just going to be a difficult road and then when you add the political overtones um I think that it's so divided right now. We need, we so desperately need unity that whatever is on the other side, my great prayer is for unity and to move forward because uh, both sides are so opposed to the other that it's difficult to even have a conversation. Yeah. One of the things that I'll often share with somebody who wants to go into that conversation, which I typically don't, and certainly don't on a broadcast, <laughs> that's just suicide. Is the difference between a debate and a conversation? Because in and in usually we're, I'll launch in, you know, one on one, cup of coffee or something, and uh, immediately they want to go into a debate. And the nature of a debate is a win, requires a winner and a loser. Mm-hmm. The nature of of a debate requires somebody is right and somebody's wrong. I'm not really interested in that. I'm interested in a conversation. I want to know what you think. Do you want to know what I think? Let's see if we can learn something together. That's entirely different than a debate.
0: Well, I certainly agree with that. And for me, being a pastor at a Wesleyan church here in Vermont, New England is certainly uh, all its own, as probably was Southern California. But you said you became a Christian or said the sinner's prayer as a senior in high school. When did you feel that call to ministry?
1: It was a uh, really rather quick um, following. Almost, you know, it was one of the two or three callings or moments in my life that was very, very God ordained. You know, when we're in school, um, There are there are times when you raise your hand and you you know I don't get it right. I I was one of those kids in terms of math and you know a lot of things. I I don't get it, teacher. There there was a moment where I got it. Something happened um, early early on. I was just a new Christian. Two things happened actually. I'll tell you them in reverse order. Um, but the second the one that happened real early that year was I was sitting in church, sitting in the back of, of, of the auditorium there with Dr. Butcher at Skyline Church. And all of a sudden, I just kind of got it, something that we know now with Holy Spirit language. But I didn't know then. I said something just happened. And I looked around and I just thought to myself, I know how this works. I know I know how church works. And of course, we we know God just downloaded that because there's most of things in life, I don't know how it works. I don't get it. But he gave me a gift and I just sort of understand how it works. So I'll back up and, and tell uh, another sort of extraordinary thing. There's only four or five in my life. And I was sitting in the back. So I graduated from high school. There was a new Christian with the high school pastor there at Skyline. And I was sitting in the college group, my first Sunday morning, big college group, 150 you know, college students i was sitting in the back row and the, and the the high school pastor was there the outgoing college pastor was there and the incoming college pastor was there and at the end of the class they said is there somebody here named Dan Ryland we need to talk with you after after the session i thought i haven't been here for an hour what could i have met? what am i could i have done wrong <laughs> you know and they said we need to take you to lunch god told us you're supposed to be the next director of the college ministry meaning not the pastor but like the volunteer leader of the whole thing and i thought i don't even i i'm just a new christian i don't know so anyway i'm going quickly with the story i just looked at them and said again okay and had no idea what was going on what god was doing but literally I'm a brand new Christian. I jumped in, started leading the college ministry and never, never stopped, never looked back in terms of leadership. And uh, now connecting it to the moment uh, earlier, I was, I'm just 18 or 19 and Pastor Butcher asked me to be on the board and that's unheard of. And he said, I don't even know why I'm doing that, but God said, you this just what you're supposed to do. And so my life has been orchestrated really as rather an ordinary guy very ordinary guy who God keeps doing extraordinary things with that's unexplainable outside of his spirit. And I just keep going forward, trying to say yes at the right times.
0: Yeah. You mentioned Dr. Butcher. I had opportunity to uh, meet him. I went to Bethany Bible College at the time, now Kingswood from uh, 93 to 97. Very good. And some time there, just a spectacular man that heard from the Lord. I'm asking this question, because here in Vermont, uh, a lot of people that attend our church even uh, do not even know what a Wesleyan is. Wesleyan.org is where you can certainly find information. But what was your introduction to the denomination, and why have you stuck with the Wesleyans?
1: That's a really good question. Um, I've, I've stuck with the Wesleyans probably, probably largely because of my gratitude for the history and the heritage, and also for the men, that have, men and the people who have poured into me. Uh, Dr. Steve Babby was a very, very kind, um, very sharp, strong, but kind uh, district superintendent over the years who looked after us young ones coming up through the ranks and going to seminary. And I've appreciated so many of the, the people in leadership from Joanne Lyons to, to you know Wayne Smith, that there's so many that have been very kind to me over the years. And so there's a mixture of two things, my gratitude for the investment and also my appreciation for the heritage. Hmm. There's a heritage theologically and a heritage through Wesley and a heritage through what we've know as our in our background that I'm actually very appreciative of.
0: Yeah, and I know for me, I was adopted as were my brother and sister, and we grew up kind of old school. When the church doors were open, we were there, and uh, my parents never served as a pastor or in that capacity, but they were the best volunteers, and I have a deep appreciation for that heritage, which my parents tell me to continue that legacy. Um, The quick transition with your website, danryland.com, where you talk about the importance of character being crucial I think that legacy is so huge for us to understand that we can lose that character or a reputation if you don't stick close to God. Could you just share about the importance of maintaining that heritage by having high moral character? Uh,
1: Absolutely. I I think for all of us, you know, we can uh, I've been a pastor now 39 years. You can be a pastor for 39 minutes, uh, whatever it is, but you can you can lose the whole thing in a moment just an indiscretion that isn't worth it now i'm not talking about perfection i'm not talking about some kind of a legalistic lifestyle at all and mistakes are part of your your journey but there's a difference between the the knowing you you just did something and you knew it was wrong that character kind of thing and and but however uh, i don't think deep playing defense in terms of character development, works because now you're always on the catch-up. You're always on the defense. You're always you're really not moving forward, taking risks. So I think if you uh, instead pour into good character development by being around the right people, by focusing on the right things, that allows you to actually create energy and forward momentum rather than offense. You know, rather than a defensive. I have to I have to be careful. I have to be careful because you won't go anywhere that way. Mm-hmm. You have to take risks, you're gonna make mistakes, so lean into just taking the, next right, do, taking the next right step, doing the next right thing, keeping yourself surrounded by people who hold you accountable, who love you, that you trust, they're smart and strong, they'll push back uh, with you. Uh, that really is the, the way to develop the character, because the bottom line is, people simply do not trust people uh, that they can't, people simply do not follow people that they can't trust.
0: Hmm. And behind me, it's a picture of uh, one of your books, Amplified Leadership. Uh, Honestly, this is the first book that I read of yours and that was uh, um, told to uh, be read by our district superintendent at the time. (laughs) But now you've come out with Confident Leader, and I just finished this book. I found it tremendous, and there are so many aspects of it that I just thoroughly loved but found somewhat convicting. Hmm. Can you talk, and I am... I'm older than I look, at least that's what I tell people, but I feel like I'm behind the eight ball. Uh, So I'm 45 years old, pastoring a church in Vermont, trying not to be competitive, but am being competitive and feel like we should be much larger than we are, much more effective than I think we are. Can you just break down, whether to myself or somebody else, where that true, confident leader comes from?
1: I think the too confident leader It comes from the inside out it begins with i'm going to put two things on the table then we'll play with theology a little bit because it's difficult for different people you know when you align with your wiring and your personality which way you choose i'm going to say it the way that pushes somebody some people's buttons first um you have to believe in yourself and then you have to believe that god is with you now some people i do that on i say it that way on purpose theologically because that that ruffles people's feathers, because there are some people, theologically and personality-wise, who have a hard time believing in themselves. One, and two, have a hard time believing that's even the Christian thing to do. That you know, to think I'm good and I'm strong and I'm smart and I'm—it has nothing to do with that. God gave you the gifts and talents that you have. God wired you with the, with the all that all of your abilities, and He wants you to live them to the fullest. A. Uh, 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 A authentic, consistent confidence is not thinking of yourself higher than God or greater than God does or lower than God does. It's it's thinking of yourself in a very self-aware way, in a mature way, the way God thinks of you. And when that's partnered with you, knowing God is with you, uh, and that's different than knowing you're saved, knowing you're going to heaven and knowing God loves you. That's different. Knowing God is with you. You know, I think about church planners, I think about all of us during COVID. Sometimes we think we can. We know God loves us. We know He's with us. We know we know He's. We know we're called. But I, I talk to a lot of pastors, and sometimes think, God, do you do you see what's going on down here? Are you with me in this? My church is getting smashed. You know, it's the knowing He's with you. That's a big. That's a really really big deal, and all of what I'm saying here. Uh, now, obviously experience and skills and confidence and, and competence, that's all really important. The whole last part of the book deals with that. Um, but but starting there is different than what most leaders do. And here's what most leaders do. They go situational. Hmm. Their confidence is based on a on situational um, basis rather than internal, internally based. And situational based confidence sounds like this. It's built on your attendance, is it up or down? It's built on the last um, conversation that was conflict-oriented. It's built on whether or not people like you. It's built on uh, a, a critical decision you have to make. All kind of outward situational things. And and we're all gonna strike out. We're all gonna be uh, frustrated in those arenas at some time. It's gotta be based on what's on the inside and then connect with the situations on the outside. Long answer, but. There's more, too. I think we need more answers
0: and longer answers uh, during this pandemic of 2020. Uh, I love how you bring out in the book, Confident Leader, Dan Ryland, danryland.com. Just uh, the story about Kerry Newoff, and uh, I've just enjoyed his work from afar, simply because I can relate. When he talks about a small church, he's talking about not a church of 200 or 300. He's talking about beginning in a church of six people or 18 people, as he had three uh, congregations at the time. Can you just share for some of us that might seemingly have smaller congregations, how we not just look to you or 12 Stone or Skyline and just say, man, I'll be a success if I get featured on whatever magazine comes to mind. But how do we truly exhibit confidence knowing that God is with us, God is for us, our identity is in Him when we know that we're mandated to reach the lost, but it seems as though we still have a small congregation.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's several things here, uh, Jeff, that, that we should address or talk about as time allows. One is I think we all have to learn how to measure differently. And that's difficult for, it's difficult for me. Obviously, I want to reach more people for Christ. I want the church to be bigger, just like you do. And And yet, I don't know that God always measures the same way we do. We can have, it's very easy to have a big church, but not have a lot of changed lives. It's easier to have a big church, but not a growing church. I think it's much more important to have a church of twenty-nine people that next year it's thirty-nine and next year it's forty-nine than to have a thousand people and it's a thousand people for ten years and no, no there's no changed lives. Hmm. And so uh, that's a freedom I love to speak into uh, pastors of smaller churches. It's not the number, is, is it moving forward. My New Testament theology in terms of church growth is twofold. One is, is yes, we, uh, uh, God expects, the, uh, Christ died for the church to grow, to get bigger. But he never said how big or how fast. And we, our mandate is to grow the church. But we don't get to decide how big it is. Yeah, yeah we just don't get to decide that. so so if you're a little bit just a little bit, one more person, one more person, you're going in the right direction. I think I think that's the thing to to grab onto. and and then I think um, when when we have to kind of look at the the uh, the geography or the location that we're in, sometimes mm-hmm. you're in a place where, your church is bigger than it seems to be. Hmm. Um, so anyways, that's one side. Then the other side, of course, is the one that we all know, and we don't have to spend a long time on, is is are you doing every everything you can to be a better leader? Are you growing as a leader? Are you developing your skills? Are you stretching? Are you pushing? Are you you know all the great Maxwell teachings? are you are you pushing in that arena? But it starts with the place we just talked about.
0: And I love the story how you share how you wanted to be a lead pastor or a solo pastor, but God kept bringing you back to being an executive pastor. Could you just share with the listeners, with those watching what that was like for you? Did you feel like you were a failure? And if so, how did you work through and find that? No, this is your true calling.
1: Yeah, I didn't feel a failure at all. I, I might have been frustrated for a minute and a half because I told John we we would walk and talk in his backyard, and I said I'm sensing a call back to the local church. Actually, I never left the local church, but I was serving many of the churches for for those seven years or so. But you know, I felt I love the church. I always have, and I was feeling a call back to a church, and and um, and he he would he would say. Oh, anyway, the teasing part I was starting to talk about is, is I said, you know, John, I, I was an executive pastor for one person. I was for you. I'm never doing that again. I did one tour. I'm done. and it's, it's my turn. I'm going to be the senior pastor. And he would laugh and he would say, well, Dano, you could clearly be a, a very good senior pastor. My wife would say you could be a very good senior pastor but you were wired and designed and created to be an XP, to be number two. And so for me, it's never never been a failure or a frustration, that kind of a thing, except for maybe a minute while we were laughing together. For me, it's always been stewardship. Mm. Um, In other words, I I, I I can't give you a number because I don't know what God may or may not have done if I was a senior pastor, and I don't think I was supposed to do that. But it's like this, I, if I was a senior pastor, I probably could lead at 10X. As an executive pastor, I can lead at 100X. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's always been about where can I make the greatest impact for the sake of the kingdom, not for what makes me feel good. And so stewardship has been my call and my answer to, to that question. And I'm really, really comfortable with where where i am with that love what i do and at this point i think it's pretty obvious god has called me to do what i'm doing so
0: so dan i um i've been i think it's god sharing with me that some things only experience can teach and sometimes only experience can be learned over time Uh, i would love to fast forward to that but we just have to walk through this journey Uh, having a different type of relationship with Kevin Myers at 12 stone, where you currently serve than with John Maxwell at Skyline. How did you learn that, that you could not just automatically bring in your old experience into this new situation, but you had to be adaptable or at least teachable in this new venture?
1: Yeah. The first thing to do is to understand quickly the difference in the relationship. Um, I like to put pictures to things. So it's easier to communicate them quickly and understand them. Uh, for John and I the the picture of the relationship was always a Paul and a Timothy we're mm-hmm. still very close we text and talk we're very connected but it will always be a Paul and Timothy and the picture was is very different with Kevin and I it was more of a Lewis and Clark mm-hmm. uh, each of us brought something unique to the table we were more partners together moving forward and to understand the relationship is the is the beginning of a healthy relationship secondly uh, understanding the expectations and the environment is a huge, huge thing. With both, which both, of course, I love both guys. I respect them both. They're both brilliant, smart leaders and communicators, and but they're both very, very strong as well. Is understanding the 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 uh, the environment and the expectations. And it was really interesting, uh, Jeff. I wasn't here a week, and Kevin and I had our first getaway together, and it was our first kind of sit down. And of all the things he could pick or choose to say to me. The only directive he's given to me in 19 years was don't touch the culture. Mm-hmm. And because he knew I came from other culture, other style, other thing, other influences, maybe even larger environments. And, and he knew he just, you know, Sam Chan hadn't written the books yet. We didn't know all the stuff we knew about it 19 years ago, but he's just an uh, intuitive leader. And he just wisely said, don't touch the culture. Help me build it, help me shape it, help me grow it. And in return, he still talks about this when he goes goes and, and speaks to people. The one thing I said to him was, pick it and stick it. Hmm. Uh, he's a creative, he's a creative genius and he has an idea every two and a half minutes. And I so said we have you've got to pick it and stick it. And we have worked with that combination of two things literally 19 years ago that have been shaping in the relationship. And that actually answers your question, jumping in, understanding all the things I rattle off really quick Mm -hmm. helps you establish a new road, a new day, a new relationship, a new setup, and to move forward.
0: You mentioned Sam Chand, and uh, his book, Leadership Pain, was eye-opening for me, but I think it directly applies during this uh, pandemic. How do you think this uh, change and pain is going to lead to growth in the Wesleyan Church in, in
1: specific? I think, honestly, throughout history, the church has always done its best. It's it's um, it's done its best under persecution. Actually, I'm not sure I could go as far as to call this persecution, but kind of. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it could go to even greater. Uh, we actually, this church thrives best uh, when it's pushed on. And uh, up until now, we've we've enjoyed decades of comfort. Decades of growth, decades of learning, so much that that churches are just bigger and bigger and bigger by in, in, in majority uh, by far. This is the first big hit we've we've had in a long time. I actually think it's going to make us better, mm. and uh, we've already proven that to a great deal, a great degree, in things like how to go digital. We're doing things no. Everybody's doing things that nobody thought was possible. uh, A minute and a half ago, (laughs) seven months ago, nobody would have said you could do children's ministry online. Mm -hmm. Nobody could say you could have a phenomenal student ministry online. Nobody would say you could have thousands of people worshiping in their living rooms. Nobody, nobody would do that. And now everybody's doing that. So it pushed us to figure out new ways and do things, which and here's how it's going to help us in the in the Wesleyan church and everybody else. Is now we all understand. The idea, yes, you can. Yeah. Yes, we can. And whenever pushes on us again and next, the answer is mm, yes, we can. We can innovate. We can innovate. We can figure it out. We can move forward. Uh, the, the people people don't need perfection. They don't need answers from us. They don't need um, the people we lead. They don't need to have an answer to every single thing figured out in a, in a season. When no one has answers, but they do need. The next step they're counting on you for that they're counting on me for that they're counting on the pastors and leaders for that the you know christian business leaders they do need the next step and that's what we're responsible to give them is the next step
0: that's really good behind me if you're watching on youtube the uh, channel is living hope wesleyan church there's a picture of john c maxwell with his father and his father just passed away and it was a sad occasion can you just talk about what you learned from watching uh, Dr. Maxwell and his father interact?
1: I I, I can. And as one who uh, hasn't known my uh, birth dad since uh, 10 years old, um, I have great respect. Now, I'm very, very blessed. Yes, my parents were divorced. But I'm very, very blessed, to God has overcompensated with uh, incredible mentors all my life. So I don't say that with as a sad note. I, I, I recognize it as a sad story, but it's not a sad note. I'm very blessed. And me watching uh, John and his dad taught me a lot. He, he has such great love for his dad and such great respect for his dad. Some could say or one could say he far surpassed his dad hmm. and could easily maybe even treat his dad like he far surpassed him. But I've watched John for nearly 40 years and he always uh, uh, treated his dad with the utmost of respect, loved him, and of course, John is one of the most generous people I know to everybody all the time. And so I just really saw this modeling of generational respect, love and kindness, and, and also gratitude. John always demonstrated uh gratitude for all that his dad poured into him and his mom that poured into him so that was just a tremendous thing to watch in play um and even today john is teaching lessons that his dad taught him yeah yeah
0: and in the book uh confident leader uh dan Ryland, danryland.com you mentioned how john introduced you to billy graham and that was kind of a dream of yours could you just share that story but can you? Just speak to the fact that John gave you that opportunity, and is that why you made time for me up here in Vermont, just uh, as people want to hear what God's done, that you just provide gracious opportunities like those?
1: Well, again, I'll go back to a comment a moment ago, and then I'll tell the story. It's a favorite; it's a fun one to tell. Um, I, I've been very, very blessed by a series of mentors, of course, John, at the apex of all, all of it. And so when you've been given so much, it's very difficult to to not want to give back so much. But maybe sometimes to my detriment, I I say yes, but I do it with a joyful heart, not with a complaining heart. I I love to do whatever I possibly can. And John is the same. And I I remember the day, it was so fun. I'll try to tell a condensed version here, um, but it's a fun story where he called and he said, Dan, I've got tickets to the, I think it was the 40th anniversary of Billy Graham up in LA. And he said, you have like two hours and two hours for you to get a tux and for your wife to get a gown. And I said, I just hung up the phone, literally two hours. And that's like, get the tux. It has to be fitted, all that stuff. And you just learned how to, especially under Maxwell's training, you learn how to make things happen, right? And one of the things we also did, just, just for an instinct, we bought a camera. We just zipped into, I don't know, I don't know, somewhere and, and, and got picked up a little camera. That was back in the day when we had film, right? Was, we had film. <laughs> so we went up there. And one of my dreams uh, as a, for 10 years was to meet my spiritual hero, uh, uh, Billy Graham. And I didn't know if that would ever happen, but John knew that. And of all the people he could take, he wanted to make help make that dream come true. And he picked Patty Nine and said, Let's go. And we went, and there's lots of parts of the story that I'll skip. But we were in, we were in a room that was a small room with probably 50 reporters. it was packed. It was not COVID style. It was elbows and eyeballs. And it was just packed. Everybody wanted to, to touch him. everybody wanted to be close. And we were, we were in that moment, John and I were with uh, one of his Billy Graham's traveling companions, Dennis Agajanian. He was one of the fastest flat pickers, you know, the guitar players in the in the world, and would play in the Crusades. And so he was part of the entourage. And so it was John and myself, and Dennis Agagianian and Billy Graham. And we were we were they were being ushered down a hallway while John and he were talking. And my wife captured one of John's favorite pictures of Billy Graham and John talking. It's an extraordinary shot with those two guys talking to each other. And then. Uh, Dennis Agajani went in the went in the door of a private room. Billy Graham went in. John went in, and this was the moment. This is the best part of the story. This the with the the security guard. The three of them are in the room. I'm supposed to go in, but I'm not as aggressive as the three of them are. Right, <laughs> and so I'm I'm you know I'm just like I'm right at the threshold of the door, and this security person puts their hand in front of me and locks eyes with me. Doesn't say anything. I mean, there's loud. Wow, there's people and reporters. And I knew and I had I had a half a second to make a decision. I'm either pushing the hand and I'm going in the door or it's never, ever going to happen. And of course, Maxwell would have said, what What are you doing? Why didn't you come in here? So I knew and I just pushed the hand and I just kept going. And I turned around to look back at my wife and she's got the camera in her hand and she threw it over (laughs) the security person. I turned around, caught the camera and the door shut. And that was the coolest moment. And so then Billy Graham and John are talking and then he turned to me and I tell you something about character and things we're talking about. I'm nobody. And he looked at me that he's like six foot 19 in my mind with fiery blue eyes. And I'm like a kid can barely say my name. He said, tell me your name. Tell me what you do, what's your ministry. He showed complete interest asking questions in who, who, about who I was, using my name. He treated me with respect. He treated me like I like I was something, which, I, of course, I wasn't, uh, compared to these guys in the room. You know what I'm saying? And, and uh, I'll never forget, behind closed doors, how a man like that treated me. Mm-hmm. And m- my respect for his character and who he was just went through the roof. And it just taught me a lesson I never forgot to give that kind of respect and kindness and generosity to everybody because it might have the impact. I'm not Billy Graham, of course, but it just might have the same impact if we can pass it along. So thanks for letting me tell a, a story.
0: Oh, that's a great story. And again, Dan Ryland, danryland.com. The name of the book is Confident Leader. And uh, you also wrote Amplified Leadership, which was an excellent book. I thoroughly enjoyed And I just want to uh, talk about um, a few things, and then we'll just let you go. And thanks, you've been gracious with your time. Somebody told me uh, the other day, as I'm 45, I've been at this local church, I don't know, seven years-ish. We've seen some growth. But they said, Jeff, you need to uh, determine if you're going to stay there or not, because once you turn 50, you become unhirable for (laughs) churches. I didn't know how to respond to that. How should have
1: I responded? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I don't think anybody is unhirable. Now, saying that, I will say to you that typically uh, people do look for senior pastors with a four in front of their age, You know, like a 47, 48, 49. Uh, It's it's, a senior pastor can stay as long as they want. Uh, Again, I'm not saying this is my truth. I'm saying just experientially. Um, uh, you could be a senior pastor at 70 years old uh, easily but typically they don't start in a church somewhere post 50 typically so somebody was probably being honest with you uh, but sometimes i so i think on a natural on the natural i think there's some truth to that there's not a lot of transfers and trades and changes made at, and at that stage for the senior pastor that said, I think God superintends and he oversees everything. He can trump anything and God can move you or anybody anywhere. I don't think it's so much the age, although we all have to be honest and we just were about age and movement and when it happens and what it looks like. I think it's really more about what is God telling you? Hmm. Uh, what is, what is the level of your fruit and joy? You've got to have both, Jeff, or anybody listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they're, you know, fruit, that, that's a combination. Fruit without joy is drudgery, and you can't go the difference, can't go the distance. And then joy without fruit, that's a party, but you, you you're not going anywhere. So uh, every leader needs to see both in their ministry or um, how can they develop it? If joy is missing, how can you develop it? If fruit is missing, how can you develop it? If it's not working, then sometimes I think that simple little test is a good way to talk to God and say, is there another place that you have for me that will have both fruit and joy?
0: And Dan, I believe you said or mentioned either in the book or uh, on a different interview that you were reluctant or resistant to leave Southern California for Atlanta. What actually made you make that decision, and was it simply financial, as some pastors it comes down to? Oh,
1: well, it wasn't financial at all. Um, uh, what made what caused me to make that decision in the end, taking the long story uh, to a, a small spot, because I was actually given the opportunity to stay to stay there, and one of the only group I out of the group that uh, could have maybe started a West Coast office or something like that. But at the end of the day, um, one, I, I was quite, quite convinced that my partnership with John was not over, and John felt the same, same way. Um, I, I believe that's what was God was telling me to do. But then the third one, the one that is more practical oriented, which is the ones everybody wants to hear, is something I, I knew inside that had I stayed in San Diego which would have been wonderful. I love my friends there. I love life there. I still love everybody there. Had I stayed in San Diego, I would have gotten comfortable and would not have grown. Hmm. I, I know. I knew that to have been true now, and it's been proven, proved true now, that my stepping out from what I call the Pacific Ocean to the Chattahoochee River—nobody does that unless God's in it, right? Um, that that I have grown tremendously and God has pushed me and stretched me and I'm still, uh, I'm a student at heart. I continue to grow and learn. And so for me, that was the biggest impetus and the biggest blessing wrapped in together that God made sure I didn't stay in a place that could have turned into comfort zone. And that's of course death to any leader.
0: Oh, definitely. Uh, Dan, we'll get you out with this final question. DanRyland.com is where you can find more information. Subscribe to the daily devotionals and uh, writings that Dan puts out. And that is, what advice would you give to balancing a healthy family dynamic when you are also in
1: full-time ministry? Wow, saving the big ones for the end, huh, Jeff? Um, well, it involves so many different things. I think one of the keys is margin. Understanding margin, how to get margin, how to how to how to what to do with it. Margin doesn't mean idle. Margin means knowing what to do with the in in between spaces. Mm-hmm. But I think I would I, I think I would answer it this way: It's getting a grasp on the difference between living life mechanically and living life organically. Mm-hmm. Mechanically, you're trying to do time management, and you can't manage time. It doesn't it doesn't work that way. Your next best step is to learn how to manage energy, you know, manage your energy levels. Get Saving your best energy for the people you love and you're closest to, saving your best energy for the biggest problems, learning to think, that's what leaders do. Um, but but the, the bigger piece is moving from that sort of mechanical, I'm gonna manage my time, I'm gonna do this by the clock, because that just doesn't work, at least in this, our field, to um, finding a rhythm, moving from trying to balance Trying to balance your life to find a rhythm in, in life uh, i've never I, I, and i i searched you know in my 30s for a balanced leader that was a great leader right i searched and searched and searched for a balanced leader i couldn't find one there wasn't a great leader that was a balanced leader i'm not sure i believe in balance anymore healthy yes balanced no i'm not sure jesus jesus was balanced in the way we say it but rhythm is important uh, you know what a metronome is you know that kind of the swinging back and forth of a metronome and it's like it's a great uh, uh image or picture that i like to use for balance i mean for uh, sorry strike that from the record for for um, rhythm and i think we we all move back and forth and we kind of go out to extremes you know you you go out to an extreme on a big project you go out you know this extreme on covid you go out and write a book you do you do all these things that are back and forth but the key is You can swing way out there to do do things that look or feel out of balance for a moment or a season as long as here's the key. You're always coming back to center and Mm -hmm. knowing knowing what your center is. I'll come to that in just a second as we wrap up. So but think about balance and out of balance. Think about um, going out and coming back. For example, vacation, right? There's nothing remotely balanced about vacation. You abandon all responsibilities, you eat whatever you want, you lay on the beach, whatever it is that you do, there's nothing balanced about it. But in a rhythm, you go out, you're on vacation, you come back, see? Daily rhythms, you know, Mm -hmm. for me, just for me, not for you, just this is my thing. For my, my center is prayer and exercise. My deal is a 5K a day. I do a little, you know, I don't run far. I don't run fast. I don't run pretty, but I do 3.1 miles a day, just always have. And so my exercise, a little bit of strength training, and my prayer routine in the morning, I have a little prayer prayer room in my in my basement. For me, that makes my, my family go right, makes my life go right, makes my health go right, because I'm always coming back to that. That's actually a daily routine for me. So balance is the deal if you know how to come back to center.
0: That is so good. Uh, Thank you so much for making the time and uh, we just pray blessings on you and your continued influence as God just uses you and your family, 12 Stone. And just uh, thank you again for making the time, Dan.
1: Thank you, Jeff. It's been my pleasure.
0: And again, that's Dan, Dan Ryland, danryland.com. You can find more information. uh, Certainly go to YouTube and subscribe Living Hope Wesleyan Church and Google Podcasts and iTunes now at Living Hope Wesleyan. Thank you so much. Be blessed, be encouraged, and know that God loves you, and let's seek Him and love others. All right, we'll talk to you soon.